This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Members of Australia's Chinese community have described a new COVID testing requirement for travellers from China as understandable. From Thursday, Australia will impose the fresh border controls, with the federal government saying it's prompted by a lack of detailed data on China's COVID surge. The tourism industry says it's a blow, but it supports the measure, as Annie Guest reports. The new rule that travellers from China must have a negative COVID test from no more than 48 hours before departure will be inconvenient for some. But in Sydney's south, Chinese community leader and independent George's River councillor Ben Wang says people will support the move. The Chinese community in Australia uh, respond to this news, I think, uh, very Calmly, and uh, they are all reasonable people. They, they expect that uh, both governments, uh, Australia and China, to act on the best interest of the, the people and follow the, the best advice from the medical advice. And Ben Wang isn't worried about any diplomatic fallout. I don't think so, uh, because for the, the relationship between China and Australia has improved uh, greatly. So this measurement is for the best interest of the, the, the health and the well-being of the people for both countries. Australia's decision comes just days before China finally eases passport and visa restrictions after nearly three years. Margie Osmond from the Tourism and Transport Forum says the industry had hoped for increased travel from China. The industry has always been incredibly respectful of um, governments following the health advice uh, and we will continue to, to do that, obviously, but there's no doubt that this is a bit of a blow in that um, the soon-to-be reopening or at least easing of provisions around travel in and out of China would have been a bit of a boon to the tourism industry here in Australia given that China has always been such a large part of our market. It's also been a large part of the international student market, which took a big hit after the border closed in 2020. But Phil Honeywood from the International Education Association of Australia isn't as concerned by the latest restriction. This will be a small um, barrier to entry, but we believe that young, resilient students who are here for three to four years anyway from China will find it just something they will need to do, um, get on with it. Uh, and, of course, already other countries we compete against have now introduced and announced already COVID testing as well. What sort of uh, bounce back in, in numbers were you anticipating this semester? At the moment, we're down to around 15% on average Chinese students back in the country. We we're hoping to get upwards of 20 to 25%, uh, still nowhere near the 35% we had pre-COVID. But obviously, we've already got quite a deal of enrolment interest. Meanwhile, International Relations Analyst Professor James Curran from the University of Sydney believes the Australian government's decision was carefully timed. I don't expect there to be any serious fallout. I don't expect there to be a spoke put in the wheel of the stabilisation of the relationship that both countries have been working towards for the past uh, six months since the Albanese government came to office. I think both uh, countries are, are too far down that stabilisation path to allow a measure like this, which is uh, really, as the government puts it, a temporary and modest measure 
uh, to ensure that travellers who do come to Australia when they leave China uh, are showing a negative COVID test. And do you think in delaying until other countries made this decision first, Australia was trying to sort of strategically protect the improvements in that relationship with China? I think the primary motivator here is obviously the health one, but I don't doubt that the strategic factor was part of the blend uh, in making this decision. Professor James Curran from the University of Sydney, ending Annie Guest's report. Within China, authorities are trying to assure the nation that the COVID outbreak is under control. Cases appear to have peaked in Beijing and some other major cities, but the lack of clear data, particularly on the death toll, is making it hard to assess the situation. East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels has more. In China's capital, they're getting on with it. Celebrating New Year's Day, ice skating at the famous Hohai Lake. 26-year-old Beijing resident Young Moore is relishing the freedom after three years of restrictions. With the pandemic over the past three years, we haven't had any opportunity to go out and have fun. It came with restrictions on travel and so forth. Now, after the end of this lockdown, we don't have to scan health codes anymore or anything like that. We're free. It's hard to comprehend just how pervasive China's COVID measures were prior to last month's sudden U-turn by authorities. 25-year-old real estate worker Jing says there's new optimism. I feel I haven't seen so many people in a long time. Now that I'm out here, I can feel the atmosphere of the new year, and it's a good one. But the opening up has brought devastation to many families, with anecdotal reports and social media videos suggesting a large number of COVID-related deaths. Grim videos from different cities of body bags in hospitals, long lines for cremation services and crowded hospital wards contrast heavily with official claims of just two COVID deaths in the past two days across all of China. The statistics have added to an undercurrent of anger among some in China who feel that the opening up was done too quickly, particularly as the elderly vaccination booster rate is still relatively low. Over the weekend, China's leader Xi Jinping made a rare reference in a New Year's speech to the unhappiness with his decision to open up. China is a big country. Different people will have different demands and different views on the same thing, which is normal. It is necessary to build consensus through communication and consultation. With some overseas analysts estimating thousands of COVID deaths per day and a case peak in late January, it will be a challenging winter for Mr Xi. But he'll be hoping most Chinese are just glad to be free of the draconian restrictions he imposed on them for so long. And at Beijing's Hohai Lake, that appears to be the sentiment. This is Bill Bertels reporting for AM. Several states are reporting a concerning rise in road fatalities. Queensland has recorded its highest road toll in 13 years, with 299 deaths. Western Australia's road toll for 2022 is at a six-year high, with 174 people killed. And there have been small increases in Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania too. To explain some of the reasons why and what can be done to improve road safety, I spoke with Dr Raphael Gibetta. He's a Professor Emeritus in Road Safety at the University of New South Wales. 
Professor, are you surprised that some states are recording their worst road toll in many years? Actually, no. Uh, I think um, it's uh, there's a general trend, uh, upward trend of more deaths this year. And there's been very little done on the federal level uh, in terms of um, uh, trying to address the road fatalities. There's a lot of very frustrated road safety uh, experts and researchers out there at the moment. What is it that you want done on a federal level? Well, I would like to see the Minister Responsible Road Safety, Carol Brown, uh, do a lot more uh, to take control uh, of the uh, situation. In other words, coordinate the state efforts. Uh, At the moment, it's just pretty much the states doing their own thing. The Joint Bipartisan Federal Parliamentary Committee on Road Safety in March 2022, made 61 recommendations. One of them was the need for a cabinet minister for road safety. And there really has been no response from this new government or the opposition, nor the Greens or the Teals. Um, There's certainly no uh, cabinet or opposition shadow minister for road safety. And that's very disappointing. We were particularly disappointed. Professor, let me have a look at, at some of the measures that states are taking. In WA, for example, the Road Safety Commission wants the law changed so cameras can be used to catch people people not wearing their seatbelt or, or on their mobile phone while driving. Why aren't cameras being used for this in all states? That's a very good point uh, that you raise, and that's what should happen almost immediately. Uh, they are being used in New South Wales as well, I believe, for picking up people who are using their uh, mobile phones. But uh, both uh, seatbelts and mobile phones could be picked up. And in fact, in Victoria, uh, most of the people that die in uh, car crashes aren't wearing their seatbelts. I mean, in this day and age, most people do. Around about 99% of people do wear their seatbelts, but those that don't wind up in crashes, wind up getting killed or seriously injured. In Queensland, the government has been attributing the terrible road toll in that state in the past year to a surge in risky behaviour on the roads since the pandemic. Does that ring true to you? Uh, well, uh, from what I saw from the media release uh, um, from for the past couple of days is there's a spike in motorcycle crashes. Now, here's something that we could adopt, and it was in the previous government's um, uh, national road safety strategy, and that was to adopt the 0.02 alcohol blood, uh, blood alcohol limit. Now, for motorcyclists, it's particularly dangerous um, when they ride, ride a motorbike to have any alcohol. At 0.05, their risk is from somewhere between 100 to 200 um, compared to a um, compared to a, a car, a driver of a car or a van. So we could do a lot more tomorrow. There are also safety standards for cars in Australia, but what changes do you think are needed? Well, we should adopt immediately a, a, a rollover um, uh, rollover crashworthiness protection uh, design rule. We've been calling that for that for three decades. So uh, we're missing opportunities. The other one is the electronic data recorder. We've been calling for that for some time now. It is being considered by Minister uh, Carol Brown, but uh, we got a response just recently and uh, her response was, I note that the framework to support effective and efficient implementation is very complex and includes a broader set of considerations than most vehicle technologies, including matters related to privacy and data storage. 
Well, that requirement for the electronic data uh, recorders, that police can access the black boxes in these vehicles, that police can access, is already adopted in Europe. It's already been sorted in terms of privacy and technical complexity. Same in the US. And so uh, in the US, uh, any, any police officer can now access that uh, black box data to establish what happened in a crash and why did a person die. Uh, we're missing these great opportunities that we could set uh, for um, uh, reducing uh, fatalities. Another one that comes to mind immediately is the Australian federal government of a, should adopt the same driving time and rest periods as set out in the European Union, uh, ECE Reg 561. Uh, 2006, they adopted this, uh, and that is at the moment in Australia, you can drive, if you're driving a truck and you've completed uh, these fatigue uh, courses, uh, you can drive for 144 hours in 14 days. In the ECE, in Europe, you can only drive for 90 hours. Over seven days, it's 56 hours in ECE. In Australia, it's 72 hours. You try working a 72-hour week. You're absolutely fatigued. So it's no wonder that we see deaths, fatigue deaths on the road. Dr Raphael Gibetta is Professor Emeritus in Road Safety at the University of New South Wales and an adjunct professor at Monash University's Department of Forensic Medicine. Residents in Menindee in far west New South Wales have spent the new year reinforcing levees around the outback town. It comes as the Darling River continues to rise, with an expected peak at 10.7 metres, which would be a new record. Bill Ormond reports. Birds sing through the early morning heat in Menindee, masking the silent, slow advance of the Darling River, which creeps closer and closer towards homes, having already swallowed several properties less than 500 metres from Joshua Nadges. Oh, it's been a few sleepless nights, don't worry about that. He was one of many residents who were caught off guard when Water New South Wales announced late last week the river would rise more than a metre from 9.6 to 10.7 metres within a matter of days. He says he's thankful for the spirit and generosity shown by community members who use their own excavators to help reinforce the levee protecting his and four other neighbouring properties. We had three people in waste deep water on their knees, pinning it along, people on the top with shovels. It was hot yesterday, but you've just got to fight so you can't fight anymore, really. The Rural Fire Service, SES and other locals are helping shore up levees which are threatening to burst. A helicopter is being used to identify weak spots in protection against the river. Bob Looney lived through the 1976 record flood and is confident his levees will withstand the creeping water. I think that will hold it. They reckon it's only going to be a few inches and I think it'll hold. But he believes communication between residents and authorities should have been better and locals shouldn't have had to dramatically build up their levees on short notice. They come and they tell you three days. Now, what's going on? What can you do? You can't do nothing. It's just a waste. Like, it was just a complete mess. According to Water New South Wales, the tally walker is at least partially responsible for the sudden change in prediction. It's a 100-kilometre long creek running adjacent to the Darling. It flows roughly once a decade, so the water in it isn't measured. When the Tally Walker burst its banks, that unmeasured water flowed back into the Darling River, according to authorities. 
It's little comfort for Barkindji woman Michelle Kelly, who lives in town and is the chair of the local Aboriginal Land Council. As far as I know that most people have housing, but if this water keeps coming up, I think there's going to be a few more people in Menindee that require housing in Menindee because they just don't know what's going to happen. Like the Ivanhoe Road was cut this morning and that was gushing, but basically they're saying it's not going to go above 10.2. And despite the river rising slower than anticipated, locals are wary of the looming peak predicted to reach 10.7 and what it might mean for their homes and their livelihoods. Bill Ormond. The new year heralds a new political landscape in the United States where a divided Congress is set to start work within days. Republicans will take back control of the House of Representatives after winning a narrow majority in the recent midterm elections. But the party first needs to sort out a messy spat for the powerful position of House Speaker. Here's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. When the newest members of the US Congress are sworn in later this week, Maxwell Frost will stand out among the fresh faces. At 25 years old, he's the first member of Generation Z to be elected. And he's told American ABC his age presents some unique challenges in Washington. I'm dealing with it, with it right now, getting denied from apartments, trying to figure out where to live because I have bad credit. Uh, probably just going to have to like couch surf for a little bit. As a Democrat, he'll be in the minority in the House of Representatives. Republicans are vowing to use their hold on the chamber to step up scrutiny of Joe Biden, promising investigations into the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and into the president's son, Hunter Biden. But before that work can begin, the House needs to elect a speaker, a powerful position second in the presidential line of succession after Vice President Kamala Harris. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is considered the frontrunner, but opposition from some conservatives within the party could mean he becomes the first nominee in a century not to win in a first-round vote. Speaking to Fox News, outgoing Republican Representative Kevin Brady was hopeful that drama could be avoided. He's led us into the majority. He's united us behind an agenda, the commitment to America. Frankly, he has worked so hard to get us in this place and he's ready to lead. So, you know, I'm hopeful we can unite as a conference. We have a we have a big battle ahead, try to get this country back on the right track. Far from complimentary, though, is another colleague on his way out, Illinois Representative Adam Kinzinger. He was one of two Republicans on the January 6 committee, which recommended criminal charges against former President Donald Trump, and also called for Kevin McCarthy to face the House Ethics Committee for failing to cooperate with its investigation. As a leader, not just a member of Congress, as a leader of Congress, he had an opportunity to tell the truth to the American people. And he went to Mar-a-Lago a couple weeks after January 6th and resurrected Donald Trump. He is the reason Donald Trump is still a factor. He is the reason that um, some of the crazy elements of the House still exist. Donald Trump is still the only candidate to have announced he's seeking the Republican presidential nomination for 2024. And at the halfway point of his term, Joe Biden is facing pressure to reveal whether he'll seek another four years in office. The president spent New Year's in the Caribbean and after previously suggesting he'd make a decision with the help of his family over the holidays, there's an expectation an announcement could be coming soon. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.